Welcome to Queer Lodgings, the queer-led podcast about everything Tolkien. I'm Grace, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Leah and Alicia. Hey there. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Go ahead, pull up a chair, settle in with a warm drink, and get ready to open the quick post as we bring you some updates from the wider world of Tolkien. In this episode, we'll interview Tim and Alicia about attending ALEP, a long-expected party, and also debut our quick post segment, where we'll bring you news about what's going on in the world of Tolkien studies and Tolkien fandom from a progressive queer-led lens. When you inevitably leave that in, please like turn up the volume on the cat meow. <laughs> that's just gonna be like the the intro sound for the end of the introduction for all of these. Which we did so well. Like we're done. It's like it's like pull up a chair and get ready for our episode. <laughs> so Tim and Alicia. First things first, um, what is ALEP? Uh, the way that I usually have been describing it to people who know that I am a huge Tolkien nerd is I'm going to go to this farm in Kentucky and LARP a hobbit for a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of it. ALEP stands for a long expected party, you know, Bilbo's long expected birthday party. And it takes place at this Shaker village in the sort of mountains of Kentucky uh, that just looks like the Shire, basically. It, I mean, it has like actual buildings, not hobbit holes, but it's just this idyllic setting. It's a functional farm. So there's like goats and sheep and ducks and turkeys and all kinds of animals. And just verdant rolling hills. Yeah. Yeah. So verdant. <laughs> Love that. It started in 2008 and basically spun out of the organizers attending, I believe, a, a Tolkien conference that they were just really disappointed in the organization of. But they met a bunch of great people there and sort of one thing led to another. They knew of this really great setting in Kentucky. and were like this. What if we could have an event there? It would be perfect. It feels, you know, very much like a Tolkien-esque kind of setting. And then they've been having them every three years since then. So it's not like a, you know, annual con. It happens every three years in the fall. And then uh, I think in between the last couple, they've started doing these like halfway events. So a year and a half in between each in the spring, in between two of them, they have like sort of a slightly smaller scale event that's a little bit less kind of formal, I suppose. I don't know. We haven't been to one of those before. This was our first one. And we had been told by a couple of our friends from Atlanta that have been coming to it for years that you know it's a lot of fun and just really kind of chill and that, you know, they always have a great time. And so we finally went along. Actually, we were supposed to go in 2020 and then fucking 2020 happened. Right. Yeah, totally. It just kept get putting off and put off and put off. And then finally, they had the event that was supposed to happen in 2020 this this year instead. I do want to point out before we start talking about what happened there in depth, that most of the people who are ALEP regulars told us that this year in particular was kind of weird. It was kind of halfway between a halfway and a full one mm, okay. because of the uncertainty of COVID times. Okay, so like... I guess in terms of like uh, like attendees or like how kind of like everybody was wearing masks and stuff. Uh, it it mostly seemed to be like the programming. Okay. Yeah. 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 It sounded like there was usually more programming than they had this time. 
Mm-hmm. They usually do have like sort of a scholar guest of honor kind of thing, like sort of similar to what VithCon does. Mm-hmm. But in this case, that scholar guest of honor was intended to be Michael Drought. And he pulled out at the last minute for sort of family release reasons for any of our listeners that hadn't heard. He had a tragic loss in his family of his son. Was it last year, I believe? And uh, they're still kind of processing that. And they were about to get some information about that, about the passing of their son. And uh, he didn't want to be away from his family at that time. So totally understandable. But it did totally. mean that it's, you know, it sounded like it was somewhat different. And they, they did end up bringing in a couple of people, but it seemed like it was a little more last minute. And so it sounded like there would have been a considerable amount more sort of academic-ish kind of programming than there, there actually ended up being in the long run. So but the some of the other programming was they had like hikes where people just like dress up in their like ranger or hobbit costumes or whatever and like walk on a hike because it's literally like like I said out in the mountains like beautiful area middle of nowhere kind of thing so there are some really nice trails and like waterfalls and rock formations and stuff and a lot of it it's also really just a massive photo shoot too so like you just go out and get all the pictures taken in your Tolkien cosplays kind of thing oh that sounds so much fun I would love to go tramping around in the hillsides uh dressed as a hobbit that would be amazing (laughs) yeah the rangers in particular are a a big group of people who actually do go camping together and like do primitive camping yeah like in their ranger costumes with packs and stuff that that like they try and get everything to look you know not modern sort of thing so like wooden carved bowls and cutlery and stuff and like everything like lamps and stuff like that all sort of looks primitive tents are just like basically like pieces of canvas that are like stretched across some like wood stakes and that kind of thing and oh man yeah, they had a little rager camp set up as an exhibit so you could go by and talk to them about their back camping or their backpacking experience oh okay very cool that's amazing yeah that's hardcore yeah there's there's archery competition and there were some of these people are clearly pretty serious into their archery and stuff like you know brought their own own bows and arrows and everything and the the most involved that i got with things was uh one of our friends if any of our listeners ever go to dragon con and are familiar with the elf choir that sings at the evening at brie or does the the elves at dragon con at some point do like a walking into the west where they walk from the easternmost hotel of dragon con to the westernmost hotel of dragon con singing the music from the fellowship of the ring where you see oh, those the elves cool. passing into the west with with lanterns and stuff like that so kathleen is the one that organizes that and she also like sort of heads up the choir for alep as well and so it was a lot of great stuff like some of the stuff she writes herself the way that alep was organized this year was it was Arda through the ages so it's three full days the first day was first age second day was second age third day was third age and for the second age day she did a rings of power medley oh. of like the valinor themes and then uh wandering day which was really nice to be able to sing in front of everybody and she does the arrangements and stuff that's so cool i'm fucking sick of that song already <laughs> <laughs> and then in the third age day we got to sing misty mountains from the hobbit movies so that was fun too very cool. Very cool. I wasn't nearly as involved in actual programming. I went to one talk where someone was passing around the um, exhibit booklet from Art of the Manuscript. Oh, cool. Cool. Very and nice. that was really cool. But other than that, I just like 
hung out dressed as a hobbit or a ringwraith and read Return of the King. <laughs> yeah, and then besides that, it was really just kind of hang around and cosplay, or in the case of our ringwraith cosplays, skulk around in cosplay. It was so much fun. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't really seem to cosplay villains. It's really more people like just trying to, you know, have a relaxing time. Hang in the Shire. Yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of people aren't even cosplaying like specific characters or anything like that. They just want to be some generic background hobbit or something like that, you know, that doesn't have to fucking go on like a, you know, six month trek to Mordor or some shit, right? Like they just want to be fingers. Yeah, exactly. I'll just hang out in the Shire and, you know, have 18 meals a day kind of thing. So Ah, energy (laughs) that I very much enjoy. Yeah, exactly. And so we got to wear our Ringwraith cosplays for basically only the second time since DragonCon 2019 and sort of sneak around the Shire and sneak up on people and have hobbits, you know, take pictures with hobbits that were being menaced. Yeah. Yeah, recoiling in fear <laughs> away from us. And then after dinner one night we we hid. There's a, a walkway that's like totally pitch dark. We hid along that walkway and kind of like jumped out at people, scaring them on their way back in our ring race cosplays. That was, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so costuming and cosplay is a pretty big part of this, right? It was for us. Yeah, and a lot of the cosplayers are like pretty serious. Like some mm-hmm. there are some of these cosplayers that are like people that enter competitions regularly and stuff and and some of the work was just and and the thing is nobody there's no contest or anything. Like mm-hmm. you, nobody's going there like, you know, to you know, I guess to some extent to show off or whatever, but like really everybody's just going there because they love to, you know, dress up in their costumes in this world kind of thing, which is really neat. It was such a chill event. Like every night they have the basement of one of the buildings is um, looks kind of like a pub. So they set it up like a pub. They call it the dancing pony. And everyone just kind of gathers there. I also can't actually pronounce their name. The Brobdignanian Bards. Brobdignanian Bards. Yeah. Brobdignanian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so Mark Gunn and I think the other guy's name is Andrew McKee. They're there the whole weekend. They they bring them there for the whole weekend, and they they play during dinner, and then they come down into the the pony, quote unquote, after dinner. And we basically it's like a singing circle kind of thing. Like everybody just sits around, and you know they they probably play for a good like five or six hours a day, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. Amazing. Yeah, if you don't want to sit around and sing, because that's not my speed, there's also just, you know, a bunch of tables that you can sit around with people. And then uh, there are a ton of fire pits. So the fire pit happens basically every night. One of the nights we were there, uh, someone brought their like crazy telescope. And this isn't like super Middle Earth related, but, you know, we it just was an elf telescope time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> elf magic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and because there's it's out in the middle of nowhere and there's like no light pollution you can see all yeah. kinds of really cool stuff in the sky and so oh, that's really cool yeah, yeah. We, we sat a lot around a fire pit one night and just got hammered and played cards against arda on our <laughs> phones and so that was fun a lot of random like norwegian metal got played around a campfire <laughs> yeah. uh, as, as you do you know i don't know why there's so much overlap between norwegian metal fans and middle earth fans but there is it's huge like northern finnish and like yeah norwegian and swedish like oh how there's so much like metal 
crossover between like that sphere and the Tolkien sphere. And I'm like, I don't understand it, to be honest. <laughs> I guess it's just the North mythology influences I or whatever, so. right? And so. And Viking rampage and, you know, yeah. songs to slay to. I don't know. <laughs> uh. Yeah. So I don't even know if I had other questions in here. My cat helpfully rewrote our uh, our episode guide. <laughs> oh, good. What questions did the kitty have to ask? <laughs> it, was, it was a bunch of brackets. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah. I certainly can't read what questions Shouty wanted to ask of you, so I apologize <laughs> to her for, uh, for failing in this task. But no, one of the questions that I wanted to ask was, this is the first time you attended, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So as, as first time attendees, what was something that intrigued or surprised you a lot about the event? I, I guess for me, it was that it was actually a way queerer event than I expected it to be. There was definitely sort of a generational divide. I would say the vast majority of the people that were there were there was maybe a couple people that were like under 30. But I would say maybe 95 percent of the people were 30 and above. Mm hmm maybe 50% of the people were like 50 or above. Does that seem accurate, Alicia? Yeah, it's a pretty similar demographic split to MythCon, which is not helpful to anyone who's not on this call right now. I would <laughs> say that is pretty likely, although like my view of people under 30 is a little skewed because I talked to one of those people at length. <laughs> yes <laughs> <we> yeah. <laughs> but yeah especially in that younger contingent and i say when i say younger in in this context i mean like you know the 25 to 50 kind of crowd it <laughs> right. seemed like very heavily skewed towards queer people like a lot of non-binary people trans people gay in general people i know at least there were a couple that were like aroace that kind of thing too and it was it was really cool experience and not something that I was expecting because especially at sort of the tables that we were hanging out like sort of late into the evening at the pony or like around the campfires and stuff I was in the minority as a, as a fucking like cis straight dude and that was really interesting to me you know yeah. and, and I found it I mean I was definitely having to be very conscious of pronoun usage and stuff like that which I'm just in my daily life I don't interact with that many queer people especially like not that not people that are like openly non-binary or trans. And so it was really an interesting experience for me in that respect, just having to be that conscious of it and having those experiences. And I don't know what it is about the event necessarily that, you know, it, it is, does seem like a very welcoming group of people in general. Like they talk about, you know, it feels a little cultish to be honest, Like they talk about <laughs> like, you know, once know, you've come me. once you're, you're part of quote unquote, the family sort of thing. The family. Well, I mean, that's, that's actually a very queer thing, so. Yeah, exactly. I was kind of waiting for the Kool-Aid to get passed around. So, is wait, is being queer a cult now? Okay, I'm going to have to, <laughs> might, have to re, might have to rethink some of this. <laughs> it, was, it was really a great experience speaking as a, a non-binary person to be around that number of people who also are non-binary or genderqueer in some way. Yeah. Um, Tim and I had a ton of conversations about what pronouns does this person use? And I'm like, shit, I don't know. Just use they. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just yeah. use they. <laughs> that. 
I had a lengthy conversation with some with a couple of people about hormone replacement therapy, which is not at all what I thought I was going to be discussing at a Tolkien event. Totally. It was fantastic. Like to just really feel like fellowship with a bunch of people who are similar to me, even though I mean, I know a lot of those people from other events, but to have everyone all together and just being our weird little queer selves, it was great. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, it's kind of kind of a rare thing in Tolkien to encounter, especially like in like in in-person events. And I sort of hope that this means that this is going to become a lot less rare, especially as those quote unquote younger folks, the uh, 20 to 50 year olds uh, start <laughs> aging up and kind of, you know, becoming the I, I don't know, the old guard of Tolkien. You know, mm. I, I I kind of hope that that the, uh, the demographics are changing and all sorts of areas of society and I'm kind of I'm I'm eager for it for for what's going on in Tolkien for sure. Yeah, it was interesting to me. I had a, a thought about potentially doing like a demographic survey of different Tolkien groups because I've noticed as I've gone to more and more events, there are older queer people at yeah. Tolkien events and they're generally lesbians. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite <laughs> sure what it is, but I'm like, I, I'm here for it. <laughs> I mean, are, what are hobbits if not cottagecore lesbians, honestly? Right. That's, that's, that's it. That's, that's exactly. <laughs> Speaking of demographics as well, another thing that struck me is it is a very white event. Oh, yeah. Which is probably not surprising yeah. to anybody there. You know, I could, there's probably less than 5% people of color kind of thing. Yeah. One of the gentlemen that was part of like the ranger group was was black, lovely guy. There was a woman, I think, that maybe of Filipino descent, but it was very, very white. But again, you know, I think that's honestly, you know, the demographic of Tolkien fans definitely does skew pretty white. But still, yeah. you know, it would have been nice to see a little bit more representation in that respect. But, you know, take what you can get. Queer as hell is still pretty good. I saw like three Asian people there. True. Yeah. And, which is the highest number of Asian people I've ever seen at a Tolkien event ever. <laughs> yeah. Which is that's pretty very funny. sad. But yeah. Also a little heartening, right? Yeah. yeah. It's a reminder to all of us that we have a lot of work to do to make our spaces actively welcoming instead of just passively welcoming if we're yeah. we're trying to to hold space for everyone in Tolkien fandom mm-hmm. and in Middle Earth. Yeah. And I will say that the experience of ALA, like the experience of the event itself was was very good in general. And there's not much that I can say that's negative about it. It does kind of feel a little bit like it's organized on a wing and a prayer. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they they give you a schedule like very last minute and you just kind of have to know or ask somebody else like where things are is like, oh, where's dinner tonight? Because there's one night that they have it under basically they set up this area on sort of a satellite area of the shaker village to be a party tree and it's beautiful but like if i didn't know that it was out there i would have just gone to the barn where we'd eaten dinner the past two nights which is also lovely but not where dinner would have been that night dinner was two miles away from the barn (laughs) (laughs) yeah basically somewhere that you have to drive to yeah you have to work work for your dinner man (laughs) yeah exactly yeah in terms of the programming, too, because I feel like partially because my drought dropped out and partially because I just get the feeling like Tim that it is just kind of on a wing and a prayer. Most of the programming 
was incredibly heavily Christian. The academic mm. program, especially. Yeah, they had a couple of guys there. I'll just say names. I think it was Ch- uh, Charlie Starr, yep. who is a professor. I can't remember at what school. I, I'm vaguely familiar with his work. And I think he's more of a Lewis scholar, honestly, than he is a Tolkien scholar. Yeah. Not super surprising. And then another guy named Devin Brown, who I had not ever heard of before personally. And they were the ones that were giving the, I think, all of basically the academic programming. I'm famously sick to fucking death of all Jesus all the time in terms of Tolkien. <sighs> I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you. So. <laughs> it made me want to volunteer the next time I go to have some like not overtly Christian scholarship happening yeah but like some of the other stuff was cool uh they they had a bunch of costuming stuff like Mm. uh historical costuming in particular yeah Yeah. oh that's very cool yeah yeah as someone who spent a year and a half hand sewing historically accurate hobbit costumes i appreciated (laughs) that they were uh that they were leaning into kind of more historical costuming and it's one of the things that I honestly miss about Dragon Con. Dragon Con used to have in the Tolkien track a bunch of costuming content which got me into wanting to do cosplay mm. and I wish that they would bring that back but this isn't a uh, episode about Dragon Con and its failings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, sure we'll have that episode at some point as well. Or episode perhaps. <laughs> yeah. But, and then the other thing, you know, in ter- that was a little bit negative surrounding ALUP was, again, because it is an event that's happening during the pandemic, you know, they had to make choices in terms of like what COVID mitigation measures they were going to take and stuff. I guess last year they had sort of a very small scale back event where they did require vaccination or proof of a mm-hmm. negative test. They didn't have that this year, but they did end up requiring masks and the Facebook group got spicy. Oh, when when they said that they were going to require masks, there was a lot of people that were great and said, like, yeah, that's fine. You know, I'm not crazy about it, but I'll do it. But then there were some people that straight up said, like, I'm not coming if I have to wear a mask and whiny fucking yeah, conservative anti-science bullshit. And that wasn't great. Yeah. Keep in mind, this is happening in Kentucky mm-hmm. and therefore yeah. it draws a lot of locals and i feel like i am safe to make generalizations about people who live in kentucky because i am from georgia <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure if it was even all conservatives it felt like there was a little bit of that horseshoe effect like mm. our lefty like hippie mm. crunchy hippie like yeah. i don't trust anything that's not quote unquote all natural kind of mm. thing and there was actually one dude that i know is a practicing witch so i don't know political leanings but i think because of that was very much into the organic like you know i don't want to take anything into my body that's not all natural kind of thing so. <laughs> uh, yeah but none of that really surfaced at the, at the actual event i will say you know, there were a lot of people that were not wearing masks, even though they were required, but nobody really like made a stink about it. You know, it was just, yeah. you do you, I do me kind of thing. I spent a lot of time at fire pits because of that. Yeah. Outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the group that we were kind of conversing with was, was pretty good about it. Yeah. One of the people in the group lives with somebody who's uh, really high risk. So we were all being as serious about that as we could be even when we were just hanging out inside by ourselves one of the nights we um 
ended up in a, in a house because that the housing works in like individual houses and they're split oh, into okay. little hotel rooms. So okay. our house was rented out completely with people that we knew, uh, mm. mostly people that we lived, lived near in Atlanta. And uh, one night we spent a couple of hours in like the downstairs of our house and we were all a still common area. Yeah, we were all still wearing masks because one of those people is someone who lives with somebody who's really highly at risk, even though we were all a group of relatively careful vaccinated people. It, it got brought up. You don't know what I've been careful really means. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> everyone's everyone's level of, of care is is different for sure. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to go back at at some point, whether we do the halfway one or the next full one it was so just like chill and liberating and like i got up every morning and ate breakfast and then came back and had a nap and then woke up and put on some Ugh. cosplay and just like walked <laughs> around and read a book and then took her dog out because we had to take her dog with us in my cosplay <laughs> yeah and then it was time for dinner it was great <sighs> that sounds <laughs> idyllic gordon was was juan the hound of valinor for the weekend <laughs> yes there you go <laughs> In his little goggles. Oh, yeah. The, I will say the the food as well was very Hobbitish. Like it was, you know, full sort of Southern breakfast and grits and everything. Fucking biscuits and gravy. Man, I've missed that. Baked <laughs> apples with breakfast oh, every morning, mm. and yeah, it was really oh, yeah. good. Well, I'm glad to know that events like this exist and to have it on my radar and to have it on our listeners' radar too, because I think some of the the way that we manifest the the hope for continued inclusion and, and increased inclusion in Tolkien spaces is by being able to share the successes and challenges and the, and all that of the events that we're attending. So this this is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So for the next section of our episode, we're going to jump into our first quick post segment. So quick post, as you may remember, is the name of the postal service operating in the Shire. Every few episodes, on kind of an irregular basis, but just as needed, we'll do a quick post segment to give you updates about the world of Tolkien and Tolkien in the world. And so we're going to start off with kind of a, a hard right turn here. <laughs> oh, oh, no. It's <laughs> a bit of a bummer. <laughs> We're going to go uh, to hell for that one. Yeah. <laughs> Just because there is some really, you know, fucking terrible news in the realm of world politics and association with uh, Tolkien right now. And that can be most succinctly summed up in uh, two words, which is uh, one person's name. And that's uh, Georgia Maloney. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exasperated sighs. Everyone says yeah. <laughs> it's great that it's been nearly a hundred years and Italy's still showing its entire ass. Yeah. <laughs> so for anyone who isn't familiar with Maloney, Maloney is the newly elected prime minister of Italy. She is the head of a neo-fascist party that came out of the roots of the fascist party there in Italy. Mm -hmm. She is the most right-wing person to hold this role since Benito Mussolini. And I think she would see that as a badge of honor, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> she does, yeah. as does most of her uh, family, to my understanding, because they are also involved in the party. Shocking. The reason that this relates to Tolkien 
is that she is a huge Tolkien fan. As are most fascists in Italy. This is true. (laughs) Yeah. And this is actually something that I think a lot of folks in the wider, just general Tolkien fandom don't realize that this is, there's an organized fascist, neo-fascist movement that is taking place in, you know, various countries. But in particular, Italy has since 1977 been running neo-fascist hobbit camps called Campo Hobbit. And this is going to sound great in this context. Children's youth fascist training camps, because those words always worked out well in history. Yikes on several trikes. Yes. It is is basically indoctrination into far-right and fascist ideals. Extreme right-wing, anti-immigrant, anti you know socialism deeply anti-lgbtq yeah 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 i want to point out this is not something that is new or just in the news there have been entire academic papers written about this particular subject because Mm -hmm. it is so important and terrifying yeah it's it's just so hard to see what they could possibly see and identify with in tolkien's works but when you read into it it's things like you know, having different peoples that have their own spaces and countries that are their own and that they don't interact with each other kind of thing. They don't inter- intermarry with each other. Yeah, yeah exactly. Ex- except, you know, when, they, when do, they do in, in order to save the entire fucking world, they have right, to yeah. work together to do so. And and then, you know, it's, it's a lot of like anti-globalization and anti-technology sentiments and stuff like that. It's like, oh, well, Mordor and the Ring is, you know, represents all of modern technology and we should eschew that for simpler times. And, as much as yeah. I hate this, people say it, Tolkien's rolling over in his fucking grave. Yeah. <laughs> he, as you say, he definitely is not, I think, with all the other shit that people tell us that he's definitely rolling over his grave about. He definitely is for this. Yes. He absolutely is for this. Oh, because he, one, hated fascists as evidenced by our 20 minute rant about him and Nazis in our unofficial <laughs> first episode. And yeah. two, the suggestion that perhaps the ring might be allegorical. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That would that would really piss him off. <laughs> Just organize a letter writing campaign to Georgia Maloney and her government of that letter where Tolkien talks about like how much he fucking hates. <laughs> right. so, like, hey. This he would not like you. Just block quote, block quote, uh, block quote forever and ever. Oh yeah. man! But no, for for more than half a century in Italy, the fascist parties there have constructed their their identity around this traditionalist, like mythic age and symbols and heroes and and creation myths and and, and all of that, and. I want to point out that what they're doing in that is that they're appropriating fiction and twisting it to create a fictitious past, this modern construction of a regressive past that was more regressive than history even ever was. And it's an entirely modern construction. Yeah, the past that never existed at all. Yeah, it's it's the South will rise again, fucking Americans. It's you know the the misogynists, you know that that want to go back to Pleasantville, fucking nineteen fifties America. That 
never really existed or only really existed for upper white class men, basically, and nobody else in America, right? Yeah, it's Make America Great Again. It is the Italian, like, fantasy-based fascist movement. And in fact, uh, link link up there because Steve Bannon, in fact, has spoken and been a guest of honor at one of the, like, training camps that Maloney herself hosts and organizes. I really thought he was dead. Yeah. No, no, we're, we're still yikes on trikes here. From from your lips to <laughs> Satan's ears. Because <laughs> I hadn't heard about him in a while. And the last time I saw a picture of him, he looked real. He like he looked Mitch McConnell bad, right? He's always looked that terrible. I like from I think from from the day he was born, he looked like that. Mm. But, the man looks yeah. like he's actively rotting. Well, e- evil will age a white person like milk. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's like Emperor Palpatine, like where, you know, he the more evil he gets, the more hor- horrifically he distorts. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I did want to point out, the New York Times did sort of a profile on this phenomenon. Uh, and they point out that after the Second World War, younger members of the fascist movement were starting to feel excluded from civil society. And so they seized on a particular ad- edition of Lord of the Rings in Italian, prefaced by Elemeyer Zola, a philosopher who was, quote, a point of reference on the hard right and who argued that Tolkien was talking about everything we confront every day. Mm. So these are some of the the talking points that are being used in this context. And Maloney actually, in an interview, said that Tolkien explains better than we can what conservatives believe in. Which is one thing that just pisses me off. Yeah, it's kind of chilling. Conservatives famously are all about uh, interracial friendships, uh, <laughs> banding together to to save the world, uh, sailing off into the West with your, you know, bro, right? <laughs> Being aristocratic and befriending people of a lower socioeconomic status than you. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> chilling, I think. Another line from that, the the very end of that article from the New York Times, really, really kind of disturbs me on a deep level. It's a quote from from her in the in the article. She says, I consider power very dangerous. I consider it an enemy and not a friend. And based on what she has been doing for most of her life and now being poised to take on this position of power in Italy, I kind of have to wonder if she actually believes that, if she actually believes in what she's saying there, because her actions suggest uh, suggest otherwise. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I will say that I, I think that this is maybe one of the sort of side effects, whether good or bad, of, of Rings of Power and all of the backlash that we've seen. I don't know that all these think pieces would be getting written if Tolkien wasn't sort of at the forefront of the public conscious right now. And so regardless of how you feel about rings of power, I think that it's, you know, just the fact that we're having these conversations about Tolkien, that it's dragging a lot of this terrible shit into the light and and shining a light, you know, when did you think you were going to see a article about, you know, fascist groups co-opting Tolkien in the fucking New York times? Like, so. Or Stephen Colbert. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen Colbert has 
an amazing segment on this, which we will try to provide a link to in the, the show notes there if we're able. And I don't want to spoil all of the punchlines because he does such great delivery on all of this and really, really takes it to task in a very humorous sort of way that, that juxtaposes the horror and the humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm glad at least that some light is being shone on all of this in, in a more mainstream fashion. Like a lot of people yeah. already knew that it was happening, but, you know, that it is kind of being brought more into the mainstream discourse. I do hope that that continues. This coverage of Maloney is some of the first coverage that hasn't just been like, oh, angry fans and has been like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, no, we're actually tying it to a fascist movement. I hope more of that starts happening because like, yeah, there are angry fans, but there has been this organized group of fascists using Lord of the Rings and other cultural touchstones to further push their agenda. And they have been for literal yeah. decades now. Decades. And people yeah. have just not been paying attention to it or writing it off as like some low stakes culture war when it's more than that. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that a significant percentage of articles about Tolkien have been written in right-wing publications in the United States, like the National Review. There, right. There's a distinct reason for that. It's a long-standing, evolving phenomenon. And the fact that we've a lot of us have been lucky enough to escape recognizing it doesn't mean that it hasn't been happening. Mm-hmm. Two just really horrifying other details from this about Maloney, and then we'll move on to our next point. Just there is a a, a group, a, a musical group that is a like fascist folk band. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. I I think it's like extremist folk band. Just I can't. I'm like it's mwah. Just, just this. here, my gosh! Um, <laughs> He's gonna play the fiddle real aggressively, <laughs> really <Yeah>. aggressively. <laughs> like I'm familiar with like Joni Mitchell being a Tolkien fan, and so <laughs> this is just hard to wrap my brain around. But the band Fellowship of the Ring plays songs about European identity, including what became the anthem of uh, Maloney's party's youth front. Tomorrow belongs to us which is an Jesus. echo about of the ballad Tomorrow Belongs to Me, sung by a member of the Hitler Youth in a chilling scene in the movie Cabaret. Yep. Wow, that's so on the nose. It's so <laughs> on the nose. Also, they did acknowledge that in the context of Campo Hobbit, the camps have had their fair share of fascist salutes, but they're characterized as ironic. Oh, right. Because... <sighs> Because that also definitely is not a part of the wider far-right movement spreading its tentacles across the internet. They definitely never use irony or it's just a joke or humor or any other kind of yeah. way of shitposting to, you the know. Frog, the OK yeah. symbol, all of that. As soon as they get called out, it's like, well, it's just sarcasm. It's, it's just, just yeah, irony. I'm just doing it ironically. It's just a joke. Yeah. Calm down. Yeah, the sound that that listeners may be able to hear in the background is the collective sound of all of our eyes just rolling back in our skull as we read this, yeah. (laughs) I I do just want to point out, if there are any people who are currently listening to this podcast who identify with that fascist shit-posting nonsense, fuck you in particular. 
Yes. <laughs> Stop listening. Yeah, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> why I don't know why you're listening, I'm but not stop sure it. how you got here, but I think you're lost. <laughs> this is not the podcast you're looking for. Move along. <laughs> yes. Um, move along. The other thing is that uh, Maloney points out that, that she essentially elevates the Tolkien's text or at least her interpretation of it to the level of uh, no longer being a secular text, but being a religious text. Oh, please tell me yeah. she's one of those fucking canonized Tolkien chuckle fucks. <laughs> that would require m- even more research into Maloney than I have done, and I, I grow. There's only so many showers you can take. I was going to say, that might be a rabbit hole that I might not want to dive down into. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> these are the same people who are 100% oh Tolkien would hate that I just want any of those people if you didn't fuck off when I just told you to (laughs) be well aware Tolkien would roll over in his grave at least five times to hear anyone trying to elevate his work to the status of a religious text primarily I'm basing that on his dislike of Lewis's proselytization because he didn't think that lay people should have any say in in religion at all because he was incredibly catholic yeah get the fuck off with that yeah he was very (laughs) careful to remove overt religious reference from his text as often as he caught it certainly he might have believed in themes and what have you but he was very very careful about this and very upfront about this in his letters so folks yeah god i got way more heated about this than i was expecting <laughs> hey man if you're if you're not flame, flames on the side of your face about yeah. about fascists then I, I i don't know i don't know why you're here you're, you're not paying attention <laughs> you're not paying attention that's right so shifting gears just over across the atlantic coming back over here to america again uh, link up with mr mr bannon having a an overlap with this. But this is a more, I think, hopeful news item. And that is that there's a podcast that at least some of us uh, among the hosts have been listening to and really enjoying. It's the American Id podcast, hosted by Danny Holtz and Craig Franzen. They've started their debut series by looking at Tolkien and the the rings of power, the backlash around it, and contextualizing that over a series of researched, nuanced, in-depth episodes where they explore the efforts of the American extremist right wing to purify, quote unquote, Middle Earth and to purify Tolkien for their ideological purposes, how that's unfolded over the last six decades. They have a lot of really interesting information in their shows and a lot of things that are just really interestingly contextualized that I think one of the reasons that I in particular am enjoying it is that it helps me feel like I understand the full context and I'm not being gaslit by people who claim that this is a new phenomenon or it's an isolated phenomenon. Yeah. 10,000 percent like this. I've been morbidly reading and researching a lot about conservatism and about the far right and particularly the the niche of uh, like Christian nationalism and Christian dominionism and Christian fascism 
And in the Venn diagram of a lot of these things, Tolkien comes up a disturbing amount. Mm-hmm. And again, for the reasons that we've kind of been been talking about. And Craig and Danny do a really great job of kind of outlining how this movement is an actual movement and not an isolated phenomenon that isn't it's not a fan like sphere sort of isolated bits of upset fans about things it's strategic it's organized to a far greater degree than you might think and there are a lot of different actors and players in this some of whom don't even realize that they're actually a part of this this network of chaos and bigotry they go into how each of these things has built upon the previous piece historically. Yeah. And I think that's really key to to the contextual understanding because I am in my 30s and this has been going on twice as long as I have been alive. Yeah. And that matters to me to know the context of. And it's been going on since the internet debuted during our our childhood. You know, I'm I'm also not, I don't know if I'm an elder millennial, but I'm in my 30s as well. And so I'm kind of like, I, I can remember there not being an internet and then there being an internet. And so it's been a tool for this movement that has only contributed to maybe more of its members have deteriorated, but their impact, I think, has magnified exponentially thanks to thanks to the internet and so yeah uh, it's been a podcast that i've just been really 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 enjoying it just started and i feel like if you're interested in this sort of information then it's a really worthwhile resource for you yeah one of the things that was just very salient to me was looking at the context of how so much of the conservative attempt to claim Tolkien has started in places like the National Review and decades ago. But now with the backlash about, you know, rings of power and everything like that, I've noticed that a lot of the articles that continue getting shared in Tolkien spaces in spaces about that show are articles published through Forbes. Mm-hmm. And this lends a veneer of respectability. But the people publishing and writing these articles are contributors to the National Review. There is a distinct lens that is going on, and it's not particularly hidden. It takes very little effort to scratch the surface and see it and to understand the political connections of why a, you know, a business magazine like Forbes whose readership skews toward business executives who are 70% of them aligned with the, the conservative right, why they're publishing this sort of content and what tradition it comes out of. So, yeah, I haven't actually been listening to this podcast, but I'm just going to jump in to vouch for Craig and Danny as people and as scholars. I have uh, been to numerous uh, conferences at this point where Craig has been presenting his research and it's all incredibly well-founded and it's good shit. And I'm assuming if he takes half of what he's putting into his scholarship into this podcast, it has also got to be incredible. Yeah, I've been yeah. I've been a, a fan of Craig since I think I saw him on a, on probably one of those one of those panels that you have mentioned before. And so, yeah, I, I, I was super excited to learn that he and Danny were coming out with this podcast because I think it really is a chance for for that research to reach an even wider audience than that he's been able to before. Yeah. 
and it needs to. And I am so thankful that he is willing to take on the actual physical risk of releasing this research into the greater public. Yeah, it's really important stuff. It's 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 dark and it's kind of terrifying. I'm one of those who's like I like to have knowledge as kind of a inoculation, I guess, against some of this really dark stuff. And so the more I know, the more I feel like I'm able to to point out when it ap- appears in my sphere. And and unfortunately, with the show, uh, it's been appearing a lot more. <laughs> so I've, we've been encountering numerous folks with numerous takes on on Tolkien, many of which would probably be recognized and favored by Georgia Maloney. <laughs> On that related note, news item, there's apparently a television show airing in the Tolkien space. You may have heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) What? What are you talking about? (laughs) I've missed this entirely. In an actual connection to our previous topic, the space of Tolkien scholarship and research, we wanted to highlight a particular review of a book that has come out in recent months on the topic. The title of the book is Tolkien Race and Racism in Middle-Earth by Robert Stewart. And um, here I will just distinctly note that what we're centering is Demetra Femi's review of that book, which she did just release. It's a beautiful eight-page review. Demetra Femi's a fucking boss. Yes. In, In Journal of Tolkien Research. Yes. And this review is like, like chef's kiss, masterful annihilation. (laughs) The knife work on this academic evisceration is particularly beautiful. She dissembles this book with surgical precision. (laughs) Yeah, I just want to give some context for people who don't have it. Demetra Femi in 2008 wrote a book called Tolkien Race and Cultural History. We've mentioned it before because it is like a foundational book in Tolkien studies. It was the first monograph written about Tolkien and racism, and it started a swell of scholarship that has followed it. So this book, Tolkien, Race and Racism in Middle-Earth, claimed in its uh, its blurb, its promotional materials, that it was the first monograph about racism in Middle-Earth, which is just false, 100% false. Because Phoebe's book was put out by the same fucking publisher. I still haven't yeah. gotten over that. Paul Grieve, yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, what the fuck are you doing over there? Now, for anyone who does want to do a deep dive on their own into this particular book, you can buy it new or used for $121.39. Jesus. Or you can get Demetra Phoebe's book, which is so much better and only like 20 bucks yeah. <laughs> and actually support instead of supporting a white man who has never published in token studies before we'll get back to that one yeah who thought that he needed to wade into the fray and put up a defense of token and his racism you can actually support a very well-known and wonderful scholar Dimitri Femi. <laughs> Yeah, the the book apparently should not have been called Tolkien Race and Racism in Middle Earth, but more Tolkien Man of His Time was definitely not racist in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the uh, the accurate 
title. Yeah, that's the real title. <laughs> so like I have a personal beef with scholars outside of Tolkien studies who dip into Tolkien studies to publish something, having not engaged with the field at all. And it's something that happens all the fucking time with Tolkien studies. We're a very small, very insular field. I have been chastised for saying that because there are a, a few hundred people who work in Tolkien studies, but that's tiny. When you yeah. take into consideration the thousands of people who studied Shakespeare, etc. Right. A lot of us know each other. No one knows who the fuck this guy is because he's never published Tolkien at all. And as one of my friends said, the brass fucking balls this man has <laughs> to dip his toe into Tolkien with a monograph, having never published in any of the Tolkien journals, and it to be this monograph. Mm -hmm. Wow. The fucking caucasity, <laughs> the confidence of a white man. <laughs> a mediocre white man, yeah. So brave. Full disclosure, I have not read the entirety of this book. I have skimmed a couple of chapters. I don't really feel a need to read this book, having read Demetra Femi's, which, yeah, based on the chapters I've skimmed, seems vastly superior. And also, after reading this fucking review, Demetra Femi left this book. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if anybody had an inkling of an idea to pick up this book and add it to their library, I strongly recommend that you check out Professor Femi's. Take that $120, yeah. buy Dimitri Femi's book, buy her Audible course that she yeah. has on uh, on Audible right now about oh, yeah, uh, J.R.R. Yeah. Tolkien. And then, you know, pick up a couple copies for some of your friends who could use a, a good read also. Like, yeah. money much better spent. Yeah. Yep. However, download this review that she did the journal of Tolkien research is an open access journal it is worth reading the first couple of paragraphs of that review like made me need a cigarette and I don't <laughs> yeah. even smoke it was some of the best academic evisceration I have ever read in the first paragraph she I mean she completely so elegantly refutes the idea that this is that his work is the first in this field and just like she cites mm. can, can i read this quote yeah please <laughs> do please quote it reads more like an unrealized book proposal and at the same time an attempt to flaunt all the serious critical reading which has happened in the background of this study in order to establish the writer's authority parentheses this is the first time stewart has published on tolkien <laughs> beautiful uh, yeah and then she does like you know the boss move of citing herself like numerous times in the review she cites herself in the first paragraph or references her work in the first paragraph and also that of robin ann reed yes um, who is another tremendous scholar in this particular field if you need bibliographic research done, Robin Reed's the person to do it. She's done oh, a gosh. ton of bibliographic yeah. research. She knows the field of Tolkien studies better than basically anyone other than David Bratman, who does the Tolkien Year Review in scholarship. Yeah. And she does it with him now. Yeah. Like, just don't fuck with these people. They know yeah. the field much better than, uh, they're better than, than uh, you. Bobby Stu yeah, here they're, does. They're better than you. <laughs> right. Robbie Stu. Uh, one of the things that I really love in her review here is that, I mean, she she takes to task the, the entire premise 
of this writing as well. Like he's asking questions like, was Tolkien a racist and everything like that? And this is a beautiful quote that I want to share where she says, demonstrating that Tolkien wasn't self-consciously racist, that he did not set up to deliberately write a racist mythology, that he wasn't a Nazi sympathizer, nor did he directly and specifically endorse the ideology of other contemporary fascist groups in Britain and beyond is pretty easy. Anyone who can read his fiction and nonfiction can see that. (laughs) Anybody literate can figure out what you're trying to prove. Oh my God. (laughs) What is at stake and is taken up as a challenge in much contemporary Tolkien scholarship is more complex than this. (sighs) This entire book is written by a white dude who doesn't know shit about systemic racism is what I'm getting from this. Like, it is very possible, I know I'm speaking to the choir here, to be racist and not intend to be racist (laughs) because we all as white people benefit from a system built upon degradation of people of color. Yeah. Fucking Christ, guys. (laughs) And I understand this dude's from Australia and is not going to have the same, like, background with racism as, like, an American would. Or a European, for that matter. A very different sort of background, (laughs) though, that uh, perhaps he should educate himself upon before... Endeavoring to uh, talk about it in a book length screed, I guess, but and to have more connections into the area of scholarship where you are seeking to publish can only enrich your work and make it better. And it one single paper like that's a step he didn't yeah. do. I would take him writing one single paper for any of our peer reviewed journals. We have a number of them. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like you you have to cut your teeth. Yeah. And cutting your teeth is not writing a borderline researched monograph. Like that's that's not where you fucking start. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it just kind of speaks to you know again again fucking Paul Grave. Like come on you guys. You give this to a white dude who has very little to kind of show for it it's sort of like what on earth kind of message are you trying to send and what have you been doing lately for some perhaps some other scholars of color some queer scholars or anybody else basically and instead you kind of opted for this really easy way to get money because rings of power is out and tolkien is in the public sphere again but this is also just a complete failure of capitalism, too, because to claim that this is the first in this field when you also publish the actual first in this field, sell them both. Like, their marketing department should all be fired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, hire me, Paul Grave. <laughs> <laughs> I just, how do you forget that you published, like, as much as I don't like to use this word, the seminal book on this subject. How do you just forget wow. that? It wasn't all that long ago either. So right. maybe, maybe that whole department has like turned over since then, but and nobody knows what the hell is going on. Just searching Tolkien and racism brings up Demetra Femi's book. A fucking cursory Google search yeah. would have solved this problem. Yeah, absolutely. Like, unforgivable. <laughs> <laughs> You don't even have to go to Google Scholar. You can just go to regular Google. Google. Yeah, man. Like, yeah. And by setting it up and framing it all this way, too, it doesn't set up any 
for the research for success, it doesn't set up th- this particular scholar who wrote this book for good reception because it's just every aspect of it is slapdash. I can't even imagine this guy coming to a, a actual Tolkien conference at this point. Showing came, his face. Yeah, yeah. I would go to his talk and fucking heckle him. Yeah. I would be that dickbag in the audience heckling the speaker because the caucasity, <laughs> the caucasity of this book. It's like, yeah, you don't, you don't deserve, <laughs> you have not earned our respect here, Absolutely man. Absolutely not. Deserve, you don't deserve it. In conclusion, fuck you, Bobby Stew. <laughs> Go read Demetri Femi. <laughs> right. Like, just... Which you should have done before you began this book. Before you began this book. <laughs> like, okay, so to be 100% fair to this guy, he actually does cite Demetri Femi in his work. It just seems like he didn't actually, I don't know, absorb what it was she was talking about. <laughs> I don't think he took quite the right lessons away from it. <laughs> he needs to reread it, I think. Also, why did he allow them to bill his book as the first of this kind if he had cited Demetri Femi's book when in his he work? cites a previous monograph. I, I have so many fucking questions about this and so much rage about all of it. <laughs> However, Demetri Femi is delightful, and please yes. read her review of this horrible book. <laughs> yes, please download it. Please, please read the review. It is... A delight to read and uh, also read her book. <laughs> and uh, do her audible course. Well, yes. that one again. <laughs> Speaking of books, the last topic that we wanted to just, just touch on in our quick post review here is the current Art of the Manuscript exhibition that Alicia mentioned that is currently going on at Marquette University. Uh, this should send us off on a little bit more of a cheerful note. <laughs> but, but we've been quite cheerful this entire time. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm not sure Bobby Stu is if he hears so, it. We've been, well, I guess I'd say we've been perhaps cheerful about, the, about different things. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. It often surprises people to learn that there's a sizable trove of Tolkien manuscripts in the collections of Marquette University's Rainer Memorial Library. That collection contains the original manuscripts and multiple working drafts for The Hobbit, Farmer Giles of Ham, The Lord of the Rings, and the original copy of Mr. Bliss, among other papers, etc. The reason for that is that in 1956, Marquette University had hired a new director of libraries. They were constructing Memorial Library, which is the older of the the two connected buildings. Marquette is a Catholic Jesuit university. And Reddy was tasked with expanding the collections. He had a particular interest in preserving the works and manuscripts of Catholic authors around the world. Tolkien qualified in his view. So in 1956, the same year that he came on board, Marquette purchased the manuscripts for 1,500 pounds. That is accounting for all of the inflation and all of the translation between currencies, still less than $40,000 today. What? Yep, $39,000 today. Well, and this was, 1956 was before everything had taken off. It was 
Yeah. Um, it was before the like the paperback copies became so popular in the United States. It was before mm. there were adaptations. So it was very, very early on in the process. It, by that year, 1956, papers start, started arriving, and a lot of it was there by 1957, although Christopher Tolkien, throughout his life, as he was researching things and would find individual sheaths that were supposed to be part of that collection, would continue sending them to Marquette. Most of the rest of Tolkien's papers and a lot of ephemera are held by the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Uh, some of those items are currently on loan to Marquette for the Art of the Manuscript exhibit, which is going on there at the Haggerty Museum of Art on the Marquette University campus. And um, I, full disclosure, I have been. It is amazing. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so jealous. Especially if you're a nerd. I'm not sure that my like 12 year old nephew would be excited on the same level, but I was very excited. They offer three time slots every day for admission. It's a $10 ticket for adults with like, some discounts available for, for different things. The exhibit runs until the 23rd of December. So it's, it's still going for a couple of months here. And I would honestly go back again and again and again, uh, just to be able to look at all of the artwork. They have some of the uh, pages of the Book of Marsabool and uh, different things that are annotated with his handwriting drafts where where uh, Strider is still named Trotter. Oh my gosh. Oh yes, the hobbit that wore shoes. Yeah, very, <laughs> very cool things there. Also, I have to give mad respect to Christopher Tolkien uh, in reading his father's written annotations on, on uh, manuscript drafts and everything because having seen them in person now, oh boy, that's hard to read. Oh boy, yeah, he's he's a mess. <laughs> Alicia and I got to go to the Bodleian uh, Maker of Middle Earth exhibit at Oxford a few years ago and oh. see a bunch of Tolkien's stuff in person, including some of his handwriting. And yes, it is practically illegible. Anybody that did, you know, because he hand wrote everything, he didn't type anything out. So he hand wrote everything and had somebody, you know, type it up for him. And God's bless the people that could actually read his handwriting and type it. <laughs> for real. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have yet to actually talk to somebody who did Maker of Middle Earth and also Art of the Manuscript to kind of compare the two. Because mm -hmm. I really want to know, I want to go to Art of the Manuscript partially because the exhibition catalog is beautiful and I don't want to get it unless I actually go to the exhibition. And partially because I've seen some of the stuff that's come out of Marquette for reasons I can't talk about. Uh, <laughs> I've never actually been to Marquette, but um, mm -hmm. I've seen some interesting things. And I would like to see how much of that kind of stuff is actually on exhibit. It's in the exhibit. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple of really cool pieces there. There are some things that have never been exhibited before. So there are things that are unique to this exhibit. I think they're going to be fairly small, nuanced differences. But there are some really neat things that are, are or that are laid out together for the first time and all that one of the things that's really cool about it is that they have essentially like microfiche set up mm -hmm. so, and they have copies of the single volume lord of the rings 
that was the published version sitting next to it. And you can sit and scroll through some of the manuscript drafts and then oh, compare nice. to what the actual published manuscript oh, is. And they were very cool. I don't know if they would let everybody do this. I went on a Sunday when it first opened mm. and they definitely let me hang out an extra half an hour just like sitting there nerding out. I highly recommend for comparing the drafts, uh, the Council of Elrond in Fellowship. Mm. is a great chapter to look at because in some of the early manuscripts it's you get all of Elrond's narration instead of the summarization that is in the actual published draft. Oh, that cool. chapter is already so fucking long I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah. It would be really cool as to say I mean just just going off of like you know how how much of that is Gandalf narrating I hope be so cool to have Elrond narrating as well instead of just the summary but yeah yeah I'm I wasn't the editor so <laughs> there is also a really cool digital system that they've been working on they've licensed from the Tolkien estate the the word Anduin mm-hmm. and they have this digital resource that they're setting up where they can take six different manuscript drafts and you can look into the different drafts, the handwritten, the typewritten manuscripts, the amended ones, the final uh, published edition, and see how things shifted and changed from draft to draft. And having it digitized in that way makes it really cool and a really cool way to get a sort of a bird's eye view. Yeah. They've been working on that a while too. Like, yeah, uh, and I don't, I don't get the impression that it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're 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 still like deep in it. Yeah, Eric uh, Muller Harder has been working on that, and he's been gone to uh, Wisconsin for just months at a time. He's from Vermont, I do believe. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very cool project. That's extremely cool. Yeah. So yeah, so that's that's happy news in the Tolkien space. Yay! Yeah. Go see Art of the Manuscript if you can. I so wish that I could, but I'm I'm stuck here in Seattle, so I I will have to lust over the catalog and save. It's up. a very nice catalog too. Yeah, yeah. I do want to bring up like quickly while we're talking about Marquette, Bill Fliss, the current guy who's over the uh, Tolkien archive, is doing the fandom oral history project he's taking like five minute interviews from people where you basically just talk about like how you got exposed to Tolkien what Tolkien means for you he debuted it at MythCon like three or four years ago I was one of the first people to do it nice he's really cool he really sets you at ease and if you want to hear part of my story I'm in the first advertising video they did for getting more people to fill out the oral history it's it's really interesting. It's going to actually go in the archive along with all of Tolkien's work. So I recommend that if you have, you know, five minutes to spare. Yeah, it's yeah. it is a very cool, very cool archive that's doing a lot of good work and then also has had a really important role in a lot of like Tolkien scholarship and, and like access for scholars and everything like that. Like, you know, in particular, the Atlas of Middle Earth, Middle Earth, Karen Wynn Fonstad spent a lot of time working in Wisconsin in particular with Marquette University for the archives and then also UW Oshkosh's cartography department. So there's a lot of sort of like like Middle America university resources there in the Middle Earth Atlas. And I think that's that's really that's cool. very cool. I've done the um 
I, I, I sat down for, you know, three minutes with Bill Fliss and am, I think I'm in the third Aored. I will post a, a link to that because I, I, my name and stuff is a public in there. And it's, yeah, it's a lovely experience. Uh, like Alicia said, uh, Bill is just a lovely guy and makes you feel very much at ease. And it's a really cool way to kind of be a part of history, you know, and just and literally just talking about your love of Tolkien and what what your history with Tolkien is. So. So, yeah, uh, we'll post some links to that, I think, to uh, to email and get that set up, because I think he's still he's definitely still looking for for folks to to fill out the rest of the rest of the mark, I think. So, yeah, I'm wanting to say uh, it was part of the. Art of the Manuscript talk I went to, Bill Fliss sent somebody with a bunch of talking points. They're about to finish out one of the Aereds, but they still have like 15 more to go or something like that. <laughs> There's definitely room. <laughs> There's definitely room. So yeah. So come, come, and, come and join and tell your story. And if you want to be able to catch those links and everything, uh, come find us on social media and connect to us, uh, like the podcast, share the podcast. Alicia, where can the folks find us? Yeah, so you can find us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also stream our episodes directly on Zencaster, which is Zencaster.com slash Queer Lodgings, a Tolkien podcast with uh, hyphens between all those. Um, like uh, Grace said, leave us a rating. Please like, share, and subscribe. You can find us on Facebook at Queer Lodgings, Twitter at uh, Queer underscore Lodgings, and you can also send us an email at QueerLodgingsPodcast at gmail.com. I can take a breath now. Excellent. Cool. <laughs> Good job, folks. Our, yeah. our light, just like news and reports episode that was going to be a bit of a short episode. I think we've come in under two hours. <laughs> Jesus Christ, we can't record for less than an hour, apparently. We're, we're very bad at this, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye. Uh...